Good morning, church. Let me just tell you how good it is to be standing here this morning uh, before you, affirmed and called as your pastor. Um, Man, it is with, I've been telling a few people, you know, how are you doing? What are your thoughts? And it's, it's, uh, I can tell you, it is a full mix of, of emotion from uh, extreme sense of joy and honor to step in uh, to this office and to this church, an extreme uh, sense of sobriety and reverence for all that it's, um, this position and this office is called to, and just a great sense of anticipation, how good uh, the Lord has been uh, to me and to my family in this season, and uh, to watch and to wait and to trust that the good shepherd of, the sh- of his sheep would continue to, to lead this church through this transition. And so, um, again, I'm extremely humbled, extremely excited um, to be here. Pray for me. We've got just kind of a, a few weeks of transition where I'll be finishing up at um, my employer presently. Um, we'll be taking a a little bit of vacation at the end of the month, and then jump into the saddle officially in, in July. So kind of everything in our lives right now is in a state of flux as we're transitioning in a number of fronts and moving and packing things up, um, but so grateful uh, to you guys for your prayers, and likewise as I've been praying for you. So here's what I thought for the focus for the next two weeks um, coming off of the membership meeting last week and the, the vote and the affirmation. My In simple terms, my thought is this over the next two weeks. Uh, This week, I would like to give you my job description. And next week, I would like to remind you of your job description in simplest terms. And by that, I mean um, this week, I want to focus on what it means to be an elder and who are elders and what is the responsibility there. Um, One, I think it's really important that you know what an elder is because as members of this church, it's your responsibility to work in that participation of identifying and affirming and praying for and submitting to your elders. And so you ought to know what that man looks like, what that exhortation is. So in part, I'm preaching to myself this morning, but in large part, I'm reminding us as a church, what is an elder? And the next week, I want to go to the book of Hebrews and remind us what it means to be a member. Paul's exhortation is, I believe it's Paul, considering us to stir one another up, reminding one another Um, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. And so what it means to be an elder, my job description this week, and then uh, next week we'll consider what it means to be a member. So if you haven't already, turn in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 20. There is a singular verse that is on the cover of your bulletin, but as Greg figured out, there's going to be more said than just that verse. That's the kind of the, the, the tip of and the poignant point of everything that is said, but we're going to begin reading in verse 17, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care 
for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. And all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Would you join in praying with me, asking God would help us as we consider his word this morning? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us access to yourself by the way of his life and death, resurrection and ascension. Lord Jesus, you are worthy, for you were slain. And by your blood, you have ransomed us for God. You have ransomed your people out of every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made us a kingdom and priests unto yourself. And as your people this morning, with one unified voice, we do say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. And we pray and we ask this morning as your people that you would make yourself known, that you would make your glory seen through the preaching of your own word. We ask that you would help us. Lord, cause our dull hearts to burn bright with zeal for your name. Make us see more of your great faithfulness, your might, and your goodness. And we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word for the strengthening of your church, that your glory might be seen, held up, and magnified here on earth. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I believe it's helpful to remember that as we read through the book of Acts, what we are actually reading is the continuing story of all that the ascended and reigning Jesus is doing on earth. And at center stage in the mission of Christ is the word of God and the work of the Spirit, simultaneously woven together, working throughout this testimony of the ascended and reigning Christ continuing to work on earth. Because as you read through Acts, what you find is that it is by word and spirit that men and women are converted. It's by word and spirit that churches are planted, that they're strengthened. And this work of strengthening churches particularly, it is vital to the description of ministry that unfolds in Luke's account here in the book of Acts. It's really essential to the greater mission of the church. Not only that churches are planted, but the churches are strengthened and nourished. The first really half of Acts chapter 20, if you were to go back and read through it, it really summarizes Paul's efforts to comfort and encourage these established churches. Within the first uh, 16 verses that are there, what we really have more or less is a travel narrative. As Paul and his companions, they move from Ephesus to Macedonia to Greece, and then eventually we read of this port city of Miletus. And so within these travels, what Luke records is the emphasis really upon church strengthening. If you look back at verse 1, we're told that before departing Ephesus, Paul gathers the disciples together and he encourages them. Then in verse 2, Paul goes throughout the regions of Macedonia and Luke records that he was giving much encouragement. And then we have this description in verses 7 through 12 where Paul seeks to, the, to encourage these disciples at Troas so much so 
that he pulls an all-nighter, prolonging his speech until midnight, and that we are given this gracious yet humorous account of young Eutychus nodding off, falling out the window to the street below. And what do we read in verse 12? They took up the youth alive, and they were not a little comforted. Paul, the ever-faithful encourager, seeking to strengthen the church wherever he went. I bring all of this out because I believe that it is important to keep this theme right here of church strengthening before us as we consider what is laid out in the remainder of the chapter, as we read of Paul's words to these Ephesian pastors, these Ephesian elders. Because what could serve to strengthen the church more than a solid pastor's conference? And that's essentially what we have here. As we read Paul's words at the end of Acts chapter 20, we are listening in on the very first pastor's conference as the Ephesian elders are gathered together in this coastal town of Miletus. Now, even as I say that, that that's what this is, please don't make the mistake, really the tragic mistake, of beginning to think that this passage has little to do or say to you if you're not a pastor. For what does the book of Acts teach us? For one, it says that if you are a disciple of Christ, you've been enlisted into Christ's mission to spread the gospel either as a sender or a goer. As a disciple, Of Christ's church, you are involved in Christ's missions. That means you are either being sent to take the gospel to all nations, or you are serving as a sender to ensure that it does go to every nation. And then we also read that the church really is God's means to reach the world with the gospel. And we continue to read that God has organized his church in such a way that she is equipped that she is led by the oversight and service of pastors, of elders, Ephesians chapter 4. So if you are a faithful member of Christ church, longing to see the gospel taken to every tribe and tongue and people and nation, then you must also care for the condition of your elders. The two go hand in hand. They are part and parcel. And so really, as we think about the future of this church, and as we think about God's call and commission to his church, we ought to take up these words of Acts chapter 20 and plead with God that he would produce such men and that he would preserve such men and place them in his church for his glory to carry out his mission on earth. And really, as sobering as it is, the health of a church can generally be measured by the health of her eldership. And so for that reason, taking all this into account, what does the Apostle Paul speak to these men? What does he give to this group of Ephesian elders? He gives and he speaks of the shepherd's courage, He speaks of the shepherd's charge, and then lastly, he speaks of the shepherd's comfort. Let's consider first the shepherd's courage back in verse 18, where we read, when they came to him, the Ephesian elders, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
as Paul often does, he points to himself as an example and really as a pattern to follow in Christian discipleship. And with these Ephesian elders standing before them, he does much of the same as he does in many of his epistles. He says, I want you to remember and to look at my life. I want you to consider the pattern and the model that I have laid out before you in these three years that I have served here among you. And as he stands before these Ephesian elders and he points to his observable character as the means by which he aims to exhort them, how he lived among them is verse 18. That's the platform by which he calls them to follow his lead primarily in the area of courage. Follow my lead as I have lived among you, primarily in this pattern of courage. First, he mentions courage in the face of opposition. Paul mentions here that he faced tears and trials through the plots of the Jews, and in the book of Acts, it certainly testifies to some of this in detail. Uh, Riots, stoning, arrest, beatings, imprisonment, Paul certainly knew something about opposition. And these Ephesian elders, they would have known by firsthand experience just what it is that Paul's speaking of here. But the point of bringing all this up is not to swap war stories, to sit around the campfire at Miletus and do you remember that time? And what about that one city? And do you remember that evening? That's not at all what Paul is doing here. He's bringing this up to remind them that in the face of such opposition, he did not shrink back from declaring to them anything that was profitable. The courage, then, that Paul is most certainly concerned with is the courage to faithfully proclaim the gospel, even in the face of hardened opposition. He stands before these Ephesian pastors reminding them that he did not shrink back, that he did not cower away from both declaring to Jews and to Greeks repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. Now think of that. Think of declaring a message day in and day out, week after week, year after year, and to have the Greeks hear and respond to Paul That is total foolishness, Paul. That's absurd. You are such a complete simpleton. Your speech is without any wisdom. You, Paul, honestly, how could you stand up and say that God becomes a man and sacrifices himself for mortal men? That's foolishness, absolute foolishness. But the Jews were no better. For to them, this message of the cross was an offense. To hear them respond back to Paul, the arrogance. To blaspheme God in such a way. To assert that Jesus of Nazareth sits upon the throne of David so that he is God in the flesh. Saying things like this, Paul, will get your skull cracked open. Courage is the need of the hour. Because we are no different, and our days are no different, than the context of Paul and these men here in the port city of Miletus. We proclaim a message of foolishness. We proclaim a message that is of great offense to the listening world. We proclaim, as followers of Christ, that the God of the scripture is also the creator of all humans. And that we have been created in his image. And as creator, he is the rightful judge then of every man and of every woman. And that being created in his image, we are intended to reflect his glory and his purposes. We proclaim that. And we go a step further and we also testify and affirm that we've ignored this God. We've gone so far as to actually suppress the truth, to muzzle it to callous our hearts, and to harden ourselves against it. And because of this, what we proclaim is that as his image bearers who have fallen and rebelled against him, what we are guilty of is no small act. We are guilty of cosmic treason, treason on the highest standard, the most painful, 
the most damnable betrayal that we could ever imagine, the God who creates all things for his purpose, we say, not my God, not interested, does not exist. Suppress this truth. And that is why we, brothers and sisters, for good reason, then proclaim that all men must repent. All men must repent, and in turning from sin, they must turn to Christ, placing their faith in his substitutionary life and death, entrusting themselves and falling upon him as the only sufficient mediator between God and men. There is no other means. There is no other way. Courage. To say such things takes courage. It takes courage in the face of opposition because the gospel we proclaim, it cuts low the pride of men. And it dethrones the sacred idols of the heart. That is precisely what that message cuts after. And so Paul looks to himself and he says, take courage in the face of affliction. But he also reminds them to take courage in uncertainty and affliction. He could also point to his life as an example of staying the course in the midst of uncertain and difficult days. And when a church culture very much like ours has enjoyed these prolonged seasons of comfort over the past decades, 100 years, 250 years, I'm speaking of the church in our context, Western America, it's been mostly comfortable. And when there is a lot of even surfacy agreement upon what a culture ought to be like. And a church somewhat overlaps with that. By and large, it's very easy to exist. And sometimes to even forget that we are actually strangers and exiles. When we are a part of the majority opinion, and the opinion of the day is that this is what a man is, this is what a woman is. This is what a citizen ought to be. This is, this, is the, this is what is moral and immoral. When there is, by and large, overlap on those terms, it's quite easy when you're of the majority opinion to say, I follow Christ. But if the tables begin to turn and suddenly you are the minority opinion and the culture around, around you does not just see you as ambivalent but actually sees you as a threat to its very existence, suddenly courage becomes much more important. As you remember that it actually is very difficult to be a sojourner. This word exile is not just a cute, cliche, kind of liter literary term that we can take upon ourselves. Peter meant something by that. Uncertainty over finances, over health, even life itself has been normative for most Christians throughout much of church history, especially for her pastors. Because when the people of God say, we will obey God rather than men, well, then we are no longer in the realm of idealism or theoretical discussions in some seminary dorm room at midnight. We are having the very discussions that shape the reality of who we are as followers of Christ in this present day. And this is why, in our uncertainty, in our affliction, we pray with great zeal for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, for our daily bread, for deliverance from evil. That prayer suddenly takes on much greater significance. You begin to see there is actually real application to each of these stanzas because I need this now. Courage amidst uncertainty is the great day, the great need of the day for the church and especially for her pastors. Now, it's one thing to beat the drum for courage, to rally the troops and say, be brave, be courageous. But where does such courage come from? What moves a man like Paul to not just say things like this with great bravado, but to live them out, to model them before their eyes, where he could say, you have observed my life. What moves 
a man or a woman from mere talk about courage to remaining courageous in the face of uncertainty and affliction. Paul, again, is the wonderful model here because what does he turn to is the example, the reason for such courage. Look back at verse 24. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. You see, once a man or a woman is gripped by this truth that their life is not their own, that they've been bought with a price, then they are ready to respond with, I must glorify God with my body. I must. How much clarity would be gained amidst these murky waters of uncertainty and potential affliction if we would but remind ourselves, my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I do not count my life worth mentioning because my life's great aim and my great goal is to just finish my course with joy to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. What would a church look like and sound like if that was really the ethos, the the very livelihood, the assumption of her members? Charles Spurgeon, in his book, Lectures to My Students, specific chapter called The Minister's Fainting Fits, he has this exhortation. It is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We're not called to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. We are to spend and to be spent, not to lay ourselves up in lavender and to nurse our flesh. What is a faithful shepherd? In part, he's a man of courage. But Paul goes on. This conference continues, and he reminds them, and he gives to them not just the shepherd's courage, but he gives to them the shepherd's charge. Look back at verse 25. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after then. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Do you notice this is the second time Paul has mentioned not shrinking back? And here in this context, he says that he is innocent of the blood of all. Now, I believe Paul had been recently or thinking upon or meditating in the prophet Ezekiel. Because the themes and the language that he takes up here in this section have everything to do with shepherding and the watchman. He speaks of sheep, he speaks of wolves, he speaks of the flock of God who care for the flock. And this phrase specifically, innocent of blood, it tells us something of the great soberness and great responsibility that is placed upon elders. The Old Old Testament text that helps illuminate Acts 20 is Ezekiel 33. The watchman, there in Ezekiel 33, was responsible to blow the trumpet. The watchman was responsible to warn the people of an impending attack, and to fail to warn the people meant that their blood was on his head. He would not be innocent of their blood if he failed to watch and warn. And this watchman on the city wall must sound the alarm. And just as that watchman must sound the alarm, so too God's spokesmen are responsible to warn their hearers of divine judgment to come upon those who do not repent. 
the shepherd's charge could be summed up in one word. Watch. Of note, watch your own life. How often in the scriptures we are exhorted to watch, to stay alert. And Paul knows it's urgent enough that he charges the elders in the same way. Because the elders, any elder, is not immune to the same corruptions of sin. An elder is not immune to the same tendencies, the particular temptations and danger that lie within any man's heart lie within an elder regardless of his title. And perhaps the greater danger for an elder is that as he's devoted himself to the ministry of prayer and the word, he can mistake the hours that he spends handling the scriptures, even caring for the flock of God as sufficient evidence that his life is on track. There is a great danger in being a pastor theologian. There's a great danger in being a pastor counselor. If he is not first and foremost the gardener of his own life, tending and watching, observing and caring. And therefore the concern of Paul and the need for every elder is to stay alert. To stay attentive to the condition of his heart. We're given this great exhortation in the, the book of wisdom in Proverbs 4. Many of you have probably memorized it. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flow the springs of life. John Flavel has done the church great service by just opening up this one verse, Proverbs 4.23, and expounding in the, the numerous ways that we ought to go about keeping the heart. If you want to look it up, it's one of the sermons or one of the writings that he has in his works called Keeping the Heart. And so from this proverb, he walks through roughly 10 seasons of life that are common to many Christians, 10 different seasons that we are particularly wise to guard our hearts, to keep watch over our hearts. He mentions the season of prosperity. It's a dangerous season. And in his language, when providence smiles upon us and dandles us upon its knee, keep watch. Seasons of adversity. When he says, when providence frowns upon you and blasts all your outward comforts, keep watch. He speaks of times of trouble when the church is oppressed and persecuted. Keep watch. Seasons of temptation. In his language, when Satan lays close to siege the fort royal of a Christian's heart. Keep watch. Seasons of darkness certainly call us to keep watch when the waves of doubt roll across our lives. There's a particular temptation there that we must also keep watching. Guard your heart. For Flavel to keep the heart, it's to carefully preserve it from sin, which would disorder it, and maintain that spiritual and gracious frame that fits us for a life of communion with God. It is all the summation of every New Testament exhortation to put off and to put on. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Remind us that you're united with Christ. Seek not the things of the earth. Seek Christ where you have been united with him. To keep the heart is to carefully preserve it from sin, which would disorder it in order to maintain that spiritual and gracious frame to in order us to enjoy communion with God. Keep watch. Now, brothers and sisters, if your elders are to serve as your examples, then this means that our tenacity in watching our lives stands as a pattern for you. For you, too, must guard your heart with all diligence. You, too, must pay careful attention. You, too, must carve out time to tend and to watch and to keep by asking certain questions, very pointed questions of your heart. 
What are the particular temptations that are tugging upon my affections right now? Not 10 years ago. Not what you fear might be 10 years from now. What are the particular temptations that tug upon my affections now? How am I spending my free time? What is that revealing about my very desires? And if my speech serves to reveal my heart as Christ has taught, then what do my words expose about my heart? Keep watch. This means, then, that we are going to often be found before the reflecting glass of God's word and the care for our own souls. And as you do that, as you begin to observe particular patterns or even a specific idol that seems to be present within your life that has seduced your affections, do not let it alone. Do not allow it to remain. Lament of it. Repent of it. Mortify sin and cultivate holiness. Keep watch. They are to watch themselves. But Paul is very specific and he says not only that, they are to watch over the flock. The charge that is given to them is to watch over the flock. It's not just the elder's life, but those that he's been entrusted to. Because in verse 28, why? They are stewards over the flock of God. Why must these men watch? Well, because it's not an office of self-appointment, for one. The shepherds are overseeing the flock of God because they are placed there by the Spirit of God. Christ's church is to be ordered according to the mind of Christ. Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, he calls, appoints, and sets his overseers in his church by his own doing. Now, he most certainly uses means, and that he has affirmed that his church is to identify and affirm such men, but don't think that these means somehow lessen the soberness of being placed there by the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to appoint yourself to a position of influence and oversight saying, I'm the one in charge now. There's a certain degree of sobriety and responsibility that comes with that, but it is something entirely different for the Holy Spirit of God to set you there and say, Watch my church, for they are a purchased people which I have obtained by my own blood. Watch them. If that doesn't sharpen your senses and call you to attention, I don't know what will. Well, how are they to go about watching? Well, he tells them, he charges them, you're to watch his shepherds. That's literally the command contained within they are to care for the church of God. This is so important. Not just that they lead, but how they lead. The one attribute that is to mark out the overseer, the elder, the pastor, more than anything else is the shepherding care of Jesus Christ. These men are not to lead as CEOs. He does not tell them to lead as kings. He does not tell them to lead as entrepreneurs, as if you are starting a holy business. He says you are not influencers, you are not celebrities. The image of scripture and the charge of Paul is that you are a shepherd of the church of God. Why is that important? Well, because shepherds lay down their life for their sheep. Shepherds, by their very calling, sacrifice comfort, they sacrifice sleep, honor, reputation, and if need be, life itself for the church of God. A shepherd is not a hireling, he's not a day laborer sticking around for the next payday. A shepherd cares for the sheep with the same tone, the same posture, the same concerns as the great shepherd. And so what are these shepherds watching for? Well, certainly, the scriptures teach that shepherds are watching out for the sheep. And so that involves leading sheep into green pastures, into still waters. 
But faithful shepherds are not just concerned about sheep. They're also concerned in watching for wolves. As Calvin said, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep, one for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. It doesn't just mean you you talk real nice to some and you yell at others. He says, no, your voice is the scriptures, and the scripture gives you the means to do both. That is exactly what Paul has in mind here in Ephesus. Fierce wolves and false teachers will be among you, not sparing the flock. Meaning, the motive for their so-called ministry, it's going to result in a pasture of mangled and wounded sheep. That's what you'll see on the horizon. And instead of caring for the sheep, these wolves, they will use the sheep. They will abuse them and ultimately ruin them. If the elder's charge was not sober enough, Paul says that these same men must also not only be scanning the horizon for potential wolves, but they must also be looking among themselves for men rising up, seeking to speak twisted things, to draw followers after themselves and into false teaching. And these were not empty threats because the church of Ephesus stands as a warning. The very church that these men shepherded stands as a warning. As Paul would write to Timothy years later, 1 Timothy 1, serving in the church of Ephesus, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And in verse 19, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. Yes, the shepherd's charge, it is a sober one. It's not to be taken lightly or to be entered into flippantly. And a church who understands these things will never leave off praying for her elders. Taking them before the throne of God, pleading for their preservation, for their faithful endurance, so that they might discharge all the duties of their office. And while this note of solemnity is most certainly a part of the elder's task, Paul does not end there. Because lastly, he speaks of the shepherd's comfort. Look back at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So again, Paul, the model of Christ, the good shepherd, not only warns and charges here, he comforts and assures. That's what good shepherds do. No good pastor's conference can end without a sufficient exhortation to keep going, to keep enduring, to remind the brothers of the sufficiency of God and the power of the gospel. And we hear of primarily the comfort of God's protection. Verse 32, remember Paul is leaving these men and this church which he labored so lovingly and diligently for years And where do you put something so precious amidst such dangers? You put it in the most secure place possible. I commend you to God. The word commend is the same word Christ himself uses upon the cross as he commits his soul into the hands of the Father with his dying breath in Luke 23. There is no safer place, there's no greater comfort for an elder to hear that you labor on entrusted to God and to the word of his grace. 
When this man labors in his study, pouring over the scriptures, he does not labor alone because God is with him, graciously illuminating the scriptures by his spirit. And then when he seeks to plant the good seed of God's word among his hearers, he's not laboring alone because God himself causes the seed, the good seed, to bear good fruit, to bring about what he purposes. And when he counsels the weary soul, wounded by Satan's devices or sinful foolishness, he's not left to his own because God goes with him, giving him wisdom in those moments liberally. And when this man stands by the hospital bed, sharing final moments of earthly breath with one of his people, he speaks not words of his own invention, of his own design, but of full comfort because God and the word of his grace goes with him. And the same man, when he is alone with his thoughts, away from his pulpit and his people, unable to see any evidence of fruit before him, even here, The elder is not alone because God has been with him, and the word of his grace shall always accomplish what it purposes. The elder can take great comfort because he is commended to God. But he also has the comfort of God's provision. That's what Paul speaks to in verses 33 and 35. If a ministry is marked out constantly by watching, by giving, by sacrificing for others, well, then a very present and common temptation is to look at the immediate circumstances, the meager fruit, and grow discouraged and even embittered. But Paul comforts these men by reminding them that it is God they go with who is also their great provider. For he will build you up just as you would establish or build up a house And it is by his doing and by his own grace that he will bring you into a spiritual inheritance. That's what Paul speaks to. Now, we know this. But how often do we try and imagine that the glories of heaven are just merely a place of perfection and delight? Uh, Forgetting the riches of our inheritance are just not better circumstances with some nicer stuff. And that's what heaven is going to be but it's dwelling with Christ himself. I love Richard Sibbs and his words when he says, heaven is not heaven without Christ. It's better to be in any place with Christ than to be in a heaven itself without him. All delicacies without Christ are but a funeral banquet. What is all without Christ? I say the joys of heaven are not the joys of heaven without Christ. He is the very heaven of heaven. You see, coveting others' gold or silver or apparel, as Paul says, it is the rot of a church when she has forgotten her inheritance. And pastors are enabled to leave off this sort of covetousness through the comfort of God's faithful provision. Elders become the model for godly contentment as they work hard, as they give sacrificially, as they are helped by the weak, helping the weak, convinced that this sacrifice right here, it far outweighs the blessing that any book deal or any direct deposit could ever bring. The great comfort is that the word of his grace speaks not only to the forgiveness of sin, but to ultimately union with Christ. It is the hope of heaven, an enduring, lasting inheritance where moth does not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For what awaits us, brothers and sisters, is not just a mere stash of goods and gold, but the glory of Christ and himself with us, in eternal union. That is our satisfaction. And that is our contentment on this earth. This is the shepherd's great comfort in season and out of season. Brothers and sisters, we have been bumping up against this within this entire text, and it would be a waste to not point out the obvious here. The only reason that any elder has sufficient hope or charge to remain faithful 
And the only reason that any church has any expectation that the gospel will, be, will prevail and that we will one day inherit the earth is only, and only, because Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. He's the senior pastor of the church. And the one who will safely lead us into green pastures, he is the one who will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death and ultimately across Jordan's stormy banks into the promised land. The faithful elder and the faithful member both have their eyes ultimately fixed on the same point. The risen Christ who feeds and directs his church by his word and by his spirit. That is where a church looks. Regardless of the culture around them, regardless of the affliction or dangers or uncertainty, the people of God are those who are fixed upon their chief shepherd. It's therefore because of this wonderful truth and this truth alone that we become those sort of people who can pray in faith, we work harder than any man, we sleep sounder than anyone because of the word of God and of his grace. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. And he is the faithful watchman who warns, who keeps, who comforts, and who provides. Let's look to him. Father, you are the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that one who is the great shepherd of the sheep. And we rejoice to know that it's by his blood of his eternal covenant that we ask that you would equip us with everything good that we might do your will. And we ask that you might work in Veritas Church, both in her membership and her eldership, that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.